1: Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Mum and Mama podcast, brought to you as always by the wonderful Golding Accountancy, wearegolding.com. How are you? I'm good. This week is the second part of my chat with the amazing Holly Matthews. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then she talks there about neurodiversity, about her own, her late husband's, and her daughter's. Um, how she became a child actor Word. and her work. Word. And this week, she talks about the death Word. of her husband and her children's father. Um, it, I didn't really know much about Holly before I was asked to have her on the podcast. But her story is absolutely incredible. And it's, it's a wonderful episode. I, I really she speaks about everything so well um and even though it is I did actually get more upset when I was editing it than I did when we were having the conversation um just because it is I mean obviously it's very sad but she does speak about it very well and yeah it wasn't too terribly upsetting but yeah just to pre-warn you it might obviously it's just yeah anyway enjoy and I'll see you in a bit
0: selling a little or a lot Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
2: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Planning for your
1: next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen. work so what made you decide to do that
2: so my husband got diagnosed with brain cancer and that was my I'd I'd just done casualty and it was a two I can't remember if it was a two or three part and it was two part I think and I was playing a sexual assault victim and um it was a really good part, it was excellent, I loved doing that, because it was, I worked with the director, Graham Harper, who I'd worked with as a child on Biker, and so he was so good, like, he was so good, he was so good with that whole, because, you know, as an actor, you're acting somebody raping you, that's actually, could be in the wrong hands, done wrong, could be really quite frightening, and we did the whole scene, like, The whole thing was done. So I didn't meet the actor. He's actually quite a famous actor and I've forgotten his name, but we didn't even meet each other before that scene. So it felt quite intimidating for me in general. It was really well done. But the director, Graham, was so protective of me on that set. Like he was so good. And, um, you know, there's a lot of crying scenes and stuff in there, obviously. And and as an actor, that's really hard to keep doing. You can't keep doing it. And not all directors or people on set will get that. And you'll have, like, makeup artists chatting and, like, lighting people. And they're not appreciating what it takes to get to that level. And he was so good. Like, on set, he was like, she hasn't got three takes in out of this. Like, at this level of intensity. So everyone shut up and get it done. And it was a really great experience. Did that. So... because of that experience, what was on screen was actually really well done. And I had a lot of interest off um, people after that to come and do some different stuff. And I'd been cast in a film playing a footballer's wife. Um, I can't even remember what it was now, but I'd been cast that week. And my in real life, my husband had been experiencing headaches, depression, lots of stuff. And we put it down to we had two young kids brooke was three texas was just one and we just put it down to the fast-paced change ross was autistic we thought maybe the fast-paced change of everything is just making making going through this depression it kind of made sense although there were some things that looking back were a little illogical we were like it's probably that it's probably levels of anxiety or stress and all of that um and then during that time so i during casualty it's quite hard for me to watch some of it because there were scenes when I'm crying and that when it was from a very dark place because of what Ross was experiencing in his life at that time and that he'd phoned me and said that he'd had to wake Brooke up because he was worried that he might do something to himself, like that he might kill himself. And I was on set away from home and he said, I will never do it. I would never do it. But I had to wake Brooke up to remind myself that that wasn't the option. Now, obviously, as we as we found out his diagnosis of brain cancer, we realized it was literally something pushing on his, a part of his brain that yeah, that was experiencing yeah. that. But at that time when I'm like, I can't watch those scenes back on, I'm not, well, yeah. I've not been watching back. Cause I'm like, that woman's crying. Like she's really crying. Yeah, yeah. And so it's quite hard to watch, but so that was happening. And then like the week after I got back after filming and I'd been cast in something else and my agent was getting lots of co- interest. And um, Ross then had this really serious headache Went into hospital, got him in there and I pushed because I I knew something was wrong. I didn't think brain cancer because we had no experience of it. Um, But I knew something went right. Like, and I just said, you need to scan his head. Like, something not right. Like, something's going on. You need to scan him. And they did. And with that night, we were told he had um, an egg-sized tumor in his brain. And they just basically said, we'll do what we can. We'll look at surgery. We'll look at chemo or radio, But if there's nothing else we can do, we'll just keep you comfortable. And like, as you can imagine, it was just like, suddenly you're in that. And we had no like warm up for that. That was, we were in it. And so for me, I remember going home and walking in the house and it was probably the first time I'd been on my own and walking through the house. And it's that moment when you've had a big thing go on in your life and then you go back to mundane life it doesn't make sense anymore. Like it doesn't feel real. And I remember walking in and seeing like, you know, just stupid stuff, like your post on the side or like dishes left out and just thinking it felt like it was in someone else's house. Like it wasn't real. And then I started to think about the things I had to do and I was thinking I need to contact my agent and let her know what's happening. I need to contact, you know, and I remember then having this thought, this like clarity of thought where I was like, I don't give a shit about acting. I don't know why I ever wanted to be an actor, like it was that cut and dry. I don't yeah. know why I want to be an actor, and that hasn't really like it it kind of has shifted over the last couple of years, but it didn't completely shift back you know before as an actor, I was so one track minded i was I was on that from the from being such a young age, it was acting it was all I wanted it was consuming even at times. And then that shifted everything, and so for I phoned my agent, cancelled everything, and said like, you know, just don't bother with it. I'm not doing it. Nothing, and and I didn't want to. It wasn't even like it was like a sacrifice. It was just I didn't want to. And um, and then we we had Ross alive with brain cancer for three and a half years, and during that time of Ross having cancer, I can't sit still. So it's not like I do nothing. But obviously I wasn't acting. But what I was doing was talking about the stuff I'd always done in my personal life. I'd always done self-development for me because I grew up on television, secretly neurodiverse, not readising, and navigating all of that stuff on my own. in a time where nobody talked about self-development or mental health stuff. And, and I'd done that for years. And I'd always just thought, oh, you know, it's a weird actor thing. I just like learning about the brain. But I had essentially not only the resilience of being an actor and not getting parts and having to get back up, which is a great training ground. I had learned so much stuff about how our brains work, about coaching. Like I'd been doing this for years for myself. So I didn't lose my mind. By the time Ross was diagnosed, I just kind of started to talk about it to other people because people around me were struggling. So I was saying, we'll try this and do this and we can do this. And I started to kind of very organically like, go into that world. Like, it wasn't a clear. Like, people will often ask me, like, how did you go from being an actor into being a life coach? And I'm like, it wasn't really like that. It was just, they were always yeah. kind of intertwined. And I sort of see it as the same thing. Like, as an actor, I learn about the character's mind, I get to know them, and then I pretend to be them as a coach I learn about my clients minds I get to know them I help them with their challenges I now don't yeah. pretend to be them but it's not that weirdly they're not that yeah, dissimilar yeah. like there's lots of crossover and so I just found myself talking about it and also it was a really good way for me to take something shit that was happening and plow it into something positive something that was me. Make- making sense of something that made no sense. Like it was finding something good in something that was like just horrific. And, and that was really useful for me getting through it. And also, I guess there's that helper high of being able to see the impact on other people as well. So I started to develop that coaching business while Ross was still alive. And then when Ross died, that kind of amplified for lots of reasons. One, because I guess there was a level of credibility because people were watching me, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk and, you know yeah. experienced that it, very much in the public eye as well because it was it was very much you know in the newspapers and and it was talked about and obviously social media it's all there for everybody to see yeah, so yeah that was kind of the transition into that world
1: how long ago did he die
2: 2017 so just um, okay. just gone 5 years and um, which It's kind of weird because we've had the pandemic in the middle of that, which is pandemic time. And pandemic time doesn't feel like real time, does it? So
0: in
2: in some ways, it it feels like a hundred years ago because so much has happened. In other ways, it feels like two seconds ago. You know, there are still some days when something will happen and I'll think like, oh man, I'd love to tell Ross that. Like I'd love Ross to know that. You know, even the pandemic, like you reflect when people have died, like you reflect on what they would think about that or how they would have dealt with that and you know we talk about my husband Ross every day like it's not there's no taboo subject in my household on on that and he was a very big character so he's not and as well Ross and I were together all the time so for other people it was like from the second we met we were together we were just we were pals as well people called us Rolly his name was Ross Holly Ross combined (laughs) like we were like we just used to mess about together and come up with little stuff we would do. And we would we'd joke and say, because of the way we lived our lives, he was like had his own business and stuff as well. And because of that, we just potted around together like an old, like, you know, retired couple drinking cups of tea and doing what we wanted. So for me, there was no pretending when Ross wasn't here. There was no like, oh, he could be at work. Like there was no, no, he's, he's yeah. and I, I couldn't run away from that. Like from the very beginning, when Ross went into the hospice, Um, he was in the hospice for about a month when that happened like people could walk away and go home and take a breath but I just had to live it and breathe it and experience it and I guess that was harder for other people to watch me do that than me living it because I'm good in a crisis like I I deal well with that and it was actually more yeah two and three were harder to process I think because then it's that realization of going he's really not here this isn't just yeah. the crisis, like he's not here and he's not coming back. And I think that's when you start, and obviously people step back there and other people live their lives and you you, you have to process it. But I, I always felt like from the very beginning of Ross dying, I did process it. Like I always said Ross has died. I never said I've lost Ross, like he's not missing, like yeah. he's dead. Yeah. Like, I guess <laughs> grim, but like we don't do that yeah. in my house like we're really matter of fact like, and ross and i were matter of fact like we were brutal with each other like we had autism everything was black and white i've got adhd we were like we were brutal in, in the in the best and worst ways like we would be so harsh with each other but also like gushingly like nice about each other and so i think if you're not in that relationship you can't understand what it's then like for me to be like well he's dead or like that's harder for other people to understand how I was about it. But I knew how me and Ross talked about it. I know how me and Ross, like, even when Ross was dying, I know this is a really weird comment, but when Ross was dying in the hospice, I thought to myself, because Ross loved science, like, he was black and white, atheist, like, science, the interest in the body, how how we work. And I remember thinking, as Ross's body is literally dying and, like, it's doing what it's trying to do, which is to stay alive and its you know bits yeah. are, like, not working... And I remember thinking Ross would be really interested in this. Like I know that's yeah. a weird, but he but he would. And like yeah,
0: yeah. there's no
2: like I find it really hard when people pretend people weren't as they were when they die. So when people are like, Oh, you know, Ross will be watching over you and I'm like, he's King dead and I don't believe in heaven and that's weird and if Ross was watching over me he'd be absolutely cursing me of all the stuff I'm doing in the wrong order or like you know I mean just no like that's a way we- don't say that to people don't put like other people like don't put your beliefs on people when someone's died I think that's so weird um so yeah I you know I think for me the work that I did once Ross died it was a good way for me to channel stuff and and it really has it's been a good it's been a good way for me to work on myself, but then also find some, yeah. some sense in all of this illogical stuff.
1: Did you know that he was dying a long time before he did? Did they kind of say "We, there's nothing we can do or was it,
2: No. So when Ross was first diagnosed, we were treating to cure, even though it was rare brain cancer, even though it was normally found in children, it was normally found in the back of the head. His was at the front. We were treating to cure. And Ross had a very, very positive mindset. Like he was very black and white and he's thinking I'm dead or I'm alive and I'm not going to talk about cancer. They tell me I've got brain cancer. Well, I can't fucking feel it is what he would say. I can't fucking feel it. Like I'm not going to like... They're not telling me how to, and he would go and have brain surgery and then play football like a week later. Like he just, he defied what they said to him. Like he was having the highest level of chemotherapy and his doctor was like, Ross, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be this okay. But it was because Ross didn't read anything about what he was supposed to have and he he wouldn't have been told. Like he was like, you're not going to tell me how to live my life no absolutely not stop talking to me about it. And, and I was also really protective around Ross as well like if anyone wanted to tell him their dog sister's cousin's chemo story I was like absolutely not no thanks that's your story that's not his story like yeah, no. yeah don't yeah. tell people your shit story like I yeah, I'm yeah. really conscious now like when I talk to people who've got brain cancer or their, their loved ones I'm like Ross's story is not your story this is not yeah. one size fits all. your body is different yes. to his there is many yeah. different survivor stories of that but we in yeah. so ross was diagnosed in 2014 in 2016 we it had it he'd already had a brain surgery and at that point they'd realized it had started to grow again and for a time before that it had almost been dormant and wasn't doing anything and you know part of you is like we just want it to be gone and when you when you've got a big cancer diagnosis that's not necessarily the answer it's staying still is good you want it to yes. stay if if we know this yeah. is a big cancer and it's just doing nothing then be happy with that and be in that moment and that's we tried to do that as much as possible in 2016 when they said it was growing we had the conversation around they they offered a, another brain surgery now they didn't know how that how, what that would be like or whatever like whether that would matter or not but at that point they were ticking to ticking the box to prolong not to cure and that was a that was a shift and that was a hard shift for me to process and I think Ross as well although Ross was very matter-of-fact about stuff it was hard for me to process that that we weren't we weren't trying to get rid of it we were just trying to keep him here as long as possible and that was that was really challenging for both of us because again Ross is such a big personality like and because it's your brain the worry was then What do we get left with Ross like afterwards? And, you know, I had to be, it was really hard because I had to allow Ross to make that decision whether he wanted that second brain surgery. Everything in you as a partner is going, have the brain surgery, do everything that they say, do everything to stay alive. And I had to sit with myself and go, this is not my journey. Like I have to let Ross make that decision and I have to take myself out of this because it's not me doing it. But Ross said to me, for the, He was like, I don't want anybody to think that I didn't try. I don't want the girls to look back and say, dad didn't give it his everything since I'm going to have the brain surgery. But he did say to me, you know, I'm just worried that I don't want you feeding me fucking yogurt. Like, I don't want to be left, like, <laughs> as grim as that is. Like, I don't want that happening. Yeah. And I'm like, I get that. I think all of us as human beings get that process. Yeah, so there was yeah, there was definitely yeah. a worry the second time because he'd already experienced it, Um. But he came out of it and, you know, there was no, like, obvious deficits afterwards. He was he was pretty good. But what had happened in that time was his brother had pushed his wedding forward because, and I guess even at that time, I kind of thought, God, they're overreacting. I think I did think that a little bit. They're overreacting. They moved the wedding forward for us to be best man just after the brain surgery. And he had the brain surgery and before the wedding, about a week before, We'd been into the doctors, me and Ross, and they basically said it's growing again. Like, within a month, it's growing. And we knew this is really bad. Like, this is bad. And we knew that they were, they were not talking, they were talking about like, maybe we could try, I mean, you sort of think when someone's got cancer, they're just going to have some straightforward answer, but it's like maybe a little dollop of the chemo, this one here, they don't, yeah. it's not like that. Like you think when you hear the words chemo and radiotherapy, you've not experienced that. You think it's one thing. And it's like about 20 different things. Like, so we're like, we'll try a bit of this and a bit of that. But we knew then that this was borrowed time. Um, And so at his brother's wedding, we didn't tell anybody that obviously we wanted them yeah. to have the wedding, but it was definitely, for us, it was a lot harder. It was hard for me to be there with that kind of beautiful thing happening. And his brother announced yeah. that his wife was pregnant at the wedding. It was beautiful. Everything was happening. It was so emotional. We were carrying this time bomb to drop on people like a few weeks after. So in during that time, we were just still trying to do chemo and stuff and keep it at bay. And I guess we sort of, I think we probably naively thought maybe we've still got three yet. You know, like we we thought maybe like because we'd had yeah. that before since the last, maybe we'd have a bit more time. And we went in the May of 2017, we went to Turks and Caicos, um, a friend as a place out there. And we went out there and weirdly looking back on it, I cancelled two things to go out there. And I never cancel anything. Like I'm not that person. Like I'm not a letdown. I cancelled a speaking event and I cancelled something that my daughter Brooke was going to be doing. So I was like, I really feel like we need to go on this holiday together. You know, we just need this holiday. And we didn't really do stuff like that very often. Um, so we went out to Turks and Caicos. While, and while he was on the plane, he had a seizure. Um, And I thought maybe it's like the flight in, you know, British Airways were terrible. Um, they didn't deal with that well at all. And... Um, so there was all, like, a few little signs on the plane, like, of things and on in the holiday where he, was, he wasn't quite himself. But, again, I didn't I, – you don't – if you don't know, you don't know. And so we were, yeah. like, he's just probably, you know, is the chemo's probably affecting him and stuff, and he's tired. And, and then when we got back, it was coming up to his 32nd birthday. Um, and I remember me and the girls were writing down 32 – we were at the table doing artwork and writing 32 reasons why we love – Dad, and we're writing that and we and I turn as I'm writing that and it was very like poignant the fact that's what we were doing. I turned and he started to have a seizure. So from that point, in my mind, was when Ross went severely downhill. Now, when we went into hospital and stuff, it was all very much, I think initially they were saying things like, oh, it's like water and edema, they call it, a swelling on the brain and stuff. And I thought, oh, maybe it's because we've gone on this holiday and whatever. And we weren't really getting answers. And then we had this fucking god awful doctor because it wasn't the hospital we were normally at. And this idiot doctor, um, which prompted me to later have do some, lots of talks uh, uh, to brain surgeons and doctors about how they fucking should speak to patients. Yeah. This doctor collared me in the corridor and I said, when is Ross having an a, a MRI? Because he said he was having an MRI. And this doctor in the corridor said to me, like at the nurse's station, said, Ross has got uh, brain tumours throughout his brain. Um, do you understand the severity of this? <laughs> And I was like, are you winding me up? And I went, do you understand the severity of this to my, my family? You're going to drop that on me. He was like, he, he basically said he's dying in the nurses, like that to me. And the nurse, I felt the nurse next to me. The nurse was like, I could feel I like cringing. Yeah. And then he went, do you want me to go and tell his family? And I went, absolutely not. No, I'll do that. Absolutely not. Like... And then I went into like absolutely, like sobbing, like the nurse there. And and I and I put after Ross died, I talked about this on my um on my YouTube channel. And I got a notification about a month later. Somebody had obviously been trolling my YouTube channel. They went in like the Daily Mail or something. And it was like um actor and vlogger apparently that's what I was actor and vlogger um because what I said in this YouTube video was the fact that he didn't get head-butted is testament yeah. to meditation I said it's testament to meditation right that level of patience is testament to the work that I do so they've got yeah. it in the Daily Mail like vlogger threatens to talk us with like I mean fuck off I wasn't saying that, but anyway, that did prompt me and I ended up speaking at a... Um at uh like a brain surgeon conference about how to speak to um not just brain um, oncologists and brain surgeons and a conference and I spoke to them about how you speak to patients and their families because that's not it that is not it yeah, that is not um it. no and it was so from that time we then knew obviously he was dying again we still didn't have a hundred percent of an answer but it happened within you know so from the May we were in Turks and Caicos together in the July he was dead it happened really quickly
1: wow
2: so it wasn't as much as when people hear my story they think "Well, he was diagnosed in 2014 it must have been like all decline Ross wasn't ill like I know that's a stupid thing to say yes yes he had he did have seizures and he did have things that we managed but day to day Ross was Ross until he wasn't and then while we were sent home and stuff and it was I mean it's a mess anyone that has been sent home from the hospital to just get on with it it's it's quite a mess and I got to the point where um, the palliative care nurse came to the house and she cried because she was not happy with me having to. I mean, I'm five foot one and like tiny. I'm tiny. Ross was six foot and I was dealing with essentially when someone's got brain cancer or brain injury or anything like that, you're dealing with like a time bomb because you don't know how they're going to respond. And Ross would just get up and decide to walk up the stairs. And I'm like, if he falls or he'd, he'd try and he'd get in, like, and I couldn't. And he's then, he's, you know, then he was at a point where end stage he's wetting himself and he's, he's, you know, he's he's pooing on himself and I'm cleaning him up and I'm lifting him. And I'm, and it was just, and i got kids. And obviously everyone yeah. was around and supporting, but like Ross didn't want anyone near him but me. And they sent yeah. people in to try and help. And, and it was just awful because- You know these people are not paid anything to come and do that. They're just like it's paid pennies, and you're expecting them to look after your loved ones. And I couldn't do that. And the palliative care nurse came and was just like, she cried, and she was like, "This isn't good enough. Like we need to get him in a hospice." And thankfully, we were really, really lucky. Might and hospice in Warwick are incredible. And anyone who's experienced people in a hospice, they're just they're just angels. Like they're just different level of people in there, and they allowed it for me, for me to be a wife, like where I could just be there for Ross and I wasn't having to do those things and, you know, yeah. having that anxiety of, am I going to drop him? Am I going to hurt him? Am I, is something going to happen? Are the kids going to see this? Like I could protect, I could kind of breathe and just be there with Ross to the end and not have that um, that extra responsibility of of that like kind of crisis feeling all of the time. and And it was just a lot. So the ending of Ross's life, for me felt really quick like it felt it, it yeah. was a lot of process in a short space of time even though there'd been one part of me that kind of had understood that that was you know I'm not naive like I knew how bad it was Yeah. but there's always part of you I think that hopes maybe it won't be the outcome like yeah,
0: yeah.
2: hopes there isn't it always that you think that
0: how were the girls
2: well I mean it's 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 a process. Like, the girls were four and six when Ross died. And so it was different for different ages as well. We never lied to the girls. I've never lied to the girls. Like, yeah. I've always been really honest with the girls and tried to talk to them about their feelings. And before his second brain surgery it wasn't really... I mean, they didn't know anything. Like, you know, far from the fact Ross is six foot, they can't see the scar on his head because they're too small. Yeah. Like, they didn't really know any different... And then when we explained about his second surgery because he had a bandage on his head and I think Brooke particularly does remember that and she will talk about that because there was lots of worries around like, did she do that or did she hurt him? Or there's a you lot know, kids internalize that stuff. Um, yes, yeah. And that's really hard. And that's why it's important to talk to them because you don't know they didn't think those things. They're just children. But people were really scared to talk to the girls and I understand why because it's literally the worst thing I've ever had to do in my entire life and they so we had when ross was still in the hospital before we went home and then went to the hospice and he was cognitive enough to be able to have a conversation there was a point when i was like i need to talk to the girls now and everyone around me was scared everyone around me was not ready to have that conversation not because they're like not you know they're not supportive or anything but they were terrified and also they're processing that themselves they don't want to admit that's what's happening yeah it's hard for everybody, and there's no judgment on that. And I spoke to um, Jeff Brazier, who um Jade Goody's ex-partner, who um, was on Big Brother, and and I, yeah. I, I didn't really know Jeff, but I knew of his story, and somehow we were kind of connected to people. And anyway, it was it was in the newspapers and stuff. And Jeff contacted me on Twitter and said, "I'll give you, let me give you a call." And we um he was really really generous in speaking to me, and obviously he had, had young children who had experienced a similar thing, and um then he's also a life coach as well so had a bit of understanding about that stuff and we talked and I said you know I feel like I need to speak to the girls about what's happening and he was like of course you do like of course you do you need to give them a chance to say goodbye to say sorry to say whatever they need to say just like we do as adults we we need to say our bit and so that kind of gave me the I guess the bravery to have that conversation where everyone around me was not necessarily saying that but they hadn't experienced that so they didn't know they just wanted to protect the girls everyone wanted to protect them and so I went home and I I knew I was going to tell the girls the next day and I knew Ross didn't fully wasn't fully aware of really he was aware but he wasn't and there was that worry that if you know we left it a week later Ross might bark like a dog like
0: because it's your brain and
2: it's not like it's not yeah. You're, you're not dealing with your person fully you're not sure what part's been yeah. affected in that time but we told the girls and Brooke particularly knew like I she I as I started to say it she went just say it I know what you're gonna say like she the kids know you can't bullshit kids they're yeah. smart you yeah. can't hide that stuff from them and obviously they were they responded in the way you would expect they were absolutely heartbroken and yeah. We just tried to speak to them, and I remember when Ross was in the hospice and I had been in the hospice, and obviously that was doubly traumatic for the girls that I wasn't with them, and they did come in the hospice to a point um the last week of his life he was just sleeping, and I decided enough was enough for them to yeah, yeah. there's a point when that's not I don't want that to be their memory, and it can yeah. be quite yeah. frightening. Yeah and and they got to say their goodbyes and they said even though they might not have known that was the last time they had that moment with my husband and he reached out to both of them at that time and I think that's a nicer ending than what then happened of him just being asleep yes. and they had that moment and I remember speaking to Brooke and this was probably about two days before he died and she said um is dad ever coming out of the hospice and I said no darling and she said so is he gonna die and then I said yeah he will do and she said I really want you to come home, mom. But I know that if you come home, it means Dad's died, doesn't it? And I was like, like, yeah, that does. It. And it was, you know, at six years old, and she's processed all of that in her mind. Yeah. So when I came home, I remember I spoke to Jeff Brazier again, and he messaged me and just said, you know, make this something positive. Get balloons. Get do something good around this because it doesn't have to be just a traumatic experience yeah. and so I had that in my mind when I went in and you know the girls ran to me and all like excited because I was home and then it was that moment where I could see their faces like drop because they were realizing what that actually meant and I, I obviously told them and and they cried and then I said why don't we do some pictures and we sat down and we were doing some drawing and some artwork and Brooke, I've got it somewhere, but Brooke drew a picture of everybody in the family and she drew Ross, but she drew him slightly away from everybody. And I think that was like her way of processing what was happening yeah. and yeah you know the kids it's it's a process you know for every stage that the girls get older every milestone in their life we reflect and there's been times certainly during the pandemic time where there was a lot of heightened fear around death and obviously they're much yeah. much more scared of me dying than I was yes. yeah and I'm constantly having to like justify my life choices always uh, to <laughs> let them know I'm not being risky. I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. Um, I will look when I cross the board and, you know, they're, they're just much more heightened with that stuff. But yeah, I can't, I can't take away what's happened and I can't protect them from that. And the only thing that I can look at and realize is that some of the best people that I know in my life, the strongest, most vibrant, creative, wonderful people have had really, really shit stuff happen in their lives and really hard stuff. And it depends how you process that and how, and I just try to give them space and God, I won't always get it right. I definitely have not always got it right. But the one thing I don't I'm not I don't shy away from conversations with them they we have talked about everything every aspect of how he died what he looked like when he died how did we know what does that mean and how do you explain to a four-year-old what that means like that's really hard to explain and and that took a lot of explaining and I just try to you know we use everything from humor to you know we used to have like get it out books where they could swear in them and everything and they could scream and shout. And we used to do sweary poems were a thing for a while where it was just like ways to like get them through those moments. You know, like they would go, I would say, right, you're allowed to give me two swear words. I'm quite quick at poetry. So it was like, like quick rhymes. So it was like, right, two swear words and one topic. So it would be like, my okay. friends fell out with me today and my words are fucking changed. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> um, right. And I'd rhyme that. And it was just always trying to find, you know, and it's it's in real time because, you know, I was grieving, I'm grieving. Like it's, it's yes. a process of like three people in one house that might be a different point and- I said that to them from the beginning. I said, you know, sometimes everyone's going to be really sad. Sometimes everyone's going to be really happy. Sometimes one person's going to be sad. One person's going to be angry. One person's going to be happy. And we have to try to give space to each other and talk about it. And, And I still do. Like, I'll still say to the girls, like... I've had a really hard day today. This made me feel sad about dad. Or I went to this place and it just, it got me. Or, you know, we'll watch, me and my oldest watch Grey's Anatomy a lot. And obviously that's an emotional roller coaster. if you've watched Grey's Anatomy. It's a lot. And, you know, if there's ever like a bit on, you know, someone's husband's died or Brooke will get like that, I can feel that on a visceral, like actual level. And she'll just like, she'll get it. And the girls, you know, they'll be more empathetic and more understanding of people because of their experience and yeah we can't protect our children from everything and it's shit because I you know we want to but we can't all we can do is listen and give space to them and that's all we can do like it's it's hard and it's a process and it's funny like recently we were at the library locally and um it's like a little some charity thing at the library and we sat there there's only a couple of old people there this one woman and um, it comes up because when I wear my wedding ring so people will ask and that's not weird to me. I don't feel like it needs to be this big fucking deal about me taking my wedding ring off. Like I just wear it. It's like a tattoo to me. Like I don't. Yeah, if yeah. if somebody's got an issue with that, that becomes in comes into my life as a partner, then they're not the right person anyway. So, I. But because of that, sometimes people will say, "Oh, you know, what does your husband do, or whatever." And so it can, kind of gets dropped into people sometime. And I said, "Oh, their dad's died." And the girl, um, oh look, no, no. sorry,
1: that's I all right. I just the cat in. That's
2: all right. What's the it's cat very called?
1: Panda.
2: Panda the cat's really cute. Panda
1: the cat. Oh, well, my kids. Turn my bedroom light on, please. It's got very dark. I can like like, like <laughs> <in> witness protection.
2: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So I, we were in this library, and this, so I was talking to this woman, and, she, and it, it was mentioned about the girl's dad dying, and, and she went, Oh, they, they look, oh, they're doing great. And I thought, What a weird thing to say. <laughs> I <Like>, go, What? <laughs> they're literally in the middle of the day. I've given them a fiver each. They're, they're fine. Like, they're buying loads of crap over there. Like, they're absolutely fine right now. But what weird, I think that's a very, it's an adult way of, like, um, trying to, like, make it good for themselves. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, aren't they doing well? I'm like, well, yeah, now, at this moment, not always, no. Yeah. Sometimes it's really hard. Like, sometimes they're devastated. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they you know process it in all kinds of ways and and it's a process just like it is with us as adults like grief isn't like a linear process is it it's like back and forward sometimes And, and the kids are the same but they'll be all right and you know there's one thing when russ was dying i remember having these big conversations with him about you know what would happen next and what he would want to happen and all of that and he was like I don't want any memorial shit. I don't want any writing them letters for the future because I don't know where they're going to be at in the future. And he's like, "I trust yeah. you. Com- I trust you completely. Like, I know they're going to be fine. You've got their back, and I know that you'll yeah. weave into the. We we believe the same stuff. Like, just do that and trust yourself. And I think I, you know, the kids have got good people around them that love them, and and that's all you can want for your kids. And you're the other stuff that we have to deal with is we can't help it can we that's just what's happening
1: no you you can't and it's the only thing that's guaranteed isn't it Hmm. is that we die yeah but obviously you don't expect it at 32 no No, of course you know at any age under 70 do you really but it is unfortunately it is just it is part of life but I think the most important thing is just to talk And let them talk and and be honest. I think honesty is so important. I try and be as honest as possible as I can with my kids because kids know they're not stupid. And also, when you lie, my my friend that I spoke about before, she was lied to as a child about how... Because her dad died when she was six. Right, yeah. But she was lied to about... But it's like, when you then find out the truth... Finding out that your parents have lied to you is much worse than the truth of, of the lie. Do you know what I mean? So because much, and that kind of rocks. Your then you don't trust
2: them. Security. Like my girls yeah. can trust me completely. Like I don't know what the lies are supposed to be. Like my kids have known what sex is, what everything from really young. Because I don't, yeah. I don't. One, well, I don't. I'm impulsive, so I don't always have. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what the lie is supposed to be. So I just think, listen, if you just tell them the truth, and you're like, I had to explain over the last week what masturbation was to my nine-year-old which was that was an interesting one like that was new and I'm trying to be like dead like I don't want to give her any problems when she's older so I'm like yes it's totally yeah, fine yeah, yeah. it's totally normal it's totally healthy don't do it at the kitchen table you just it's in your own space like I'm trying to explain it's something that feels nice don't worry if you have already it's fine like it's just like I'm trying to yeah. and obviously that's a horrible uncomfortable conversation to have um but I I just kind of I, I just think you can't especially kids that have gone through tough stuff don't bullshit them yeah. you can't bullshit those kids they're so savvy and they're so smart like you can't so we yep. just keep it open and actually by doing that you you gain a level of trust with your kids that they can trust you and yes. you know you do hope yeah. that i hope and i'm sure they won't be able to talk to me about everything but i hope that they won't feel like judgment and stuff from me because yes i don't yeah. want them to feel like that like we're all, like, they know I will fully say I'm a hot mess. Like, I, I I, do my best, but I am a flawed human being and I try and we all are. And I always say that to them and I'm like, you know, we'll make mistakes. There's, there's always coming back from it. Like, you just start
1: fresh. Yeah. Apologise exactly. if you need to. And they mirror you, don't they? So if you're, I think it's good to, for them to know that you're not perfect and that we get upset and we get stressed and sometimes yeah. because then that, it makes them feel normal when they yeah. experience those
2: things, doesn't it? 100%. Like, I have people that will say to me in my, um, in my membership, in my community and stuff, and they'll say, oh, I don't want to cry in front of my little one because I worry them. And I'm like, you'll worry them if you don't cry. <laughs> like, yeah. if you don't yeah. cry at anything, like, they're sat there thinking, well, why am I crying all the time? Like... I think it's important that we we show no, show abnormal um, emotions and also consequence of behavior sometimes as well, like yep. you know if yep. if my kids say awful things to me and I get upset that's a con- that's a natural consequence of something that you've said like yep. that's not very nice and in the real world outside of you know protective parent world in your home, people will respond in that way they will get angry they will get it's a natural consequence, and I don't think. You know, I'm not talking about completely unhinged behavior, but you know, it's hard being a parent, and so we're going to mess up sometimes. And I always remember when I was growing up, particularly my dad would say, "There's no manual here. I'm doing the best that I can, and Uh, I'm going to mess up." And and I always valued that. Like an apology goes a long way, an apology and and an understanding goes a huge long way. And both of my kids will apologize, and that's because they—I mirror that. Like they—they are—they are mirroring back what I do with them. Like I show them that you should apologize if you've messed up, whether you're yes. an adult yes. or you're a kid. Own up to it. Yes. Suck it up. We're, we all make mistakes, and I think that's a really good life lesson to have for everybody. Yeah. Those that are listening as well. It's a good life lesson. Apologize yeah. when you fuck up.
1: And I think it shows strength to apologize as well. Yeah. Because I know certain people who would never admit. Yes. <laughs> Me too. They were wrong. But I'm like, it's strong when you say, actually, no, I've really messed up there. Yeah. I think it shows strength of character.
2: Yeah, I do as well. And I'm always doing it. <laughs> yes.
1: Constantly bloody doing it. <laughs> oh, so we're so strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I I can't even imagine what you've been through, but you, you seem like you're in, you're doing everything you can to try and maintain, her, which is amazing. Because I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Because I know you had kids, but... In some ways, it would be nice if you could have just stayed in bed. But then, in other ways, it's nice that you could. Do you know what? You I don't. I don't them, know if it would I mean? have.
2: Like, and I don't. People used to say to me at the start, like, of Ross dying, they'd say, "Like, oh well, I know you have to get through this because the kids." And there's one hand, as you say, like they're, they're making it harder. Like it's not their fault, but just other people being yeah. in the process is made it harder. But then on the other side, like the, it, it gives you purpose and and strength of you know to to keep yeah. walking through things as well. Like yeah it is it I you know I I know that I would have always been okay like I I'm a resilient human being and I don't ever doubt that and I don't mean resilient as in like stiff upper lip like we just keep going I I I just I want to be happy I don't want to feel shit yeah and I really truly believe that we honor the people that have died by living fully and I that's that's it like People, are, they're not here to live their life. So you live you live your life, yeah. live it fully. Like, yeah. and, and and take them with you. they you know, I say to the girls all the time, your dad's with you every step. Ross is with me when I'm doing things because he's part of my makeup. He's part of why I am who I am. He impacted my yeah. life, not only of being the father of my kids, but in my, who I am as a person, you know, we shaped each other in that relationship. And so you take your people with you, like they're not gone. They're, they're just part of the blueprint of, the, the lives that they impacted and I think that's the thing that we've got to remember we've got to live like I I want to yeah. I want to I want to live like that's it like and that yeah. doesn't mean yeah. not being upset or having down days or any of those but it, I just want to experience life and do things and have some kind of impact in a good way in the world and yeah. you know that's why when Ross died and I created the happy me project which was which it was initially a course is now a membership a book um workshops and and all sorts and kind of take on a life of its own my my f- reasoning for doing that the, the happy me project was that I really want to bring self-development to a very basic level for people like yeah. it the last thing you need when you are in your shit is complicated <laughs> what you need yeah. is low-hanging fruit and things you can try to do and so my book yeah. particularly when I wrote the book I wanted it to be a book that, well, this is partly ADHD brain as well, but I think for all of us, we ain't got time to sit and read stuff a lot of the time. So I wanted it to be a flickable book. It's 60 chapters, four pages for each chapter with tangible stuff to do at the end of each chapter. And that was conscious because I was like, listen... Moms and they're sat there and they're hiding in the toilet from their kids, which we do, um, and they can get the book and they can read four pages and they can get an idea of what the hell they can do so they don't lose their yeah. shit and they can go <laughs> out and do stuff. And and I just wanted it to be like that. And I didn't want to condescend people in their time of difficulty or like yeah. when they're just trying to work on their mind. And so for me, the Happy Me Project, and every day, I mean, I love what I do because every day I'm always thinking, how can I make this relatable to people? Like, how can I read all the fancy pants books about psychology and stuff and make it make sense to us in our house like where we're walking about just trying to deal with life like how can I make that make sense and I'm always thinking of ways to do that because everybody in their lives will experience difficult stuff and the more that we've got like tools to try and to do the easier we're going to get through it but you know our generation wasn't taught it the new generation they're talking the talk and walking the walk. Like our kids will be so much, they will have such a better vocabulary in this stuff and so many more tools that God would have loved to have had like when we were growing yeah. up. And and it's it's because of, you know, it is also because of our generation starting to talk about this stuff and, and learning about it. And I just, I love being able to do that and being able to impact people in that way. And it feels also like it, you know, it came off the back of there being a lot of press around Ross's death and people contacted me and going, How the hell are you walking through this? Cause I can't, and I'm yeah. 10 years down the line, or I'm crying because life's just hard, um, over a breakup, or the dishes are up the wall. And and I was like, right, well, this is what I do. And I had been doing it a long time, so it wasn't new to me. And if I, I think if you can make stuff a regular practice, when the shit hits the fan, you'll resort to the habits you've already learned. So if you can yeah. start doing this from now, when it gets hard, which it will, it'll also get good as yeah. well. So it's not all negative. It'll yeah, be good yeah. at times as well. When it's hard, you'll you'll have the tools ready to go like I did. And and you never to, you know, I work with people of all ages and you're never too old to learn this stuff. Like you're just not, yeah. you're never too old to shift where you're at. You're just not. And I, I love, I love it when someone comes to me and I've had a lot over the last year because my book came out in June and I've had a whole new wave of of audience. And and people all say to me, like, I never thought I would be, this was, st- I didn't think this stuff was for me. But then I heard you speak and you just didn't make me feel stupid. You didn't make me feel like a twat. Yeah. for. You didn't make me, like, chant all the crystals and stuff, which is fine if you want to do that. But I yeah. always say to people in my work, I give you the basic, like, um, I always say self-development doesn't have to be fancy right so I'm like i give you the basic stuff if you want to add in a dollop of your religion if you believe in religion or your woo woo crystals and your chanting and your sage you do that I won't add that yeah. in for you you add your own and it's fine it all sits side by side each other they're not mutually exclusive in, in what I do but I love it when somebody's brand new and they're like it's changed my life. Like I never thought that I would shift this and I've been in therapy for years, but nobody ever yeah. gave me the tools. They just want me to keep talking about the same shit over and over again, yeah, yeah, which has its place. I'm not against any therapies, but I'm just saying there's there's lots of different, you know, depending on your personality, like therapy, yeah. counselling doesn't really work for me. I, as you can tell, I'll talk a lot. That's not my issue. <laughs> I can talk about my shit. It's doing, that's the issue.
1: <laughs> I've got yeah. to know what to do
2: next. So, for some people, coaching is is a better space for them, but it depends yeah. where you're at, doesn't it?
1: How do you see your people? Is it online?
2: um yes mostly so i i do one-on-one coaching which is really select i only work with about five people at a time max because i just yeah. it's a lot of more work Um. but my membership so the happy me project membership um we i have i do a group coaching once a month but i go live in a facebook group with them pretty much every day and we do okay. that so it's it's like a gym for the mind so yeah. i I just have regular touch points with people. So we'll do each month, we have a particular topic that we do, might be anxiety. This last month has been getting comfortable in your own skin, we've talked about. So not necessarily body positivity because that's not always, like body neutrality might be it or just being kinder to yourself, but just getting okay with, so that was this month's topic. So we'll have a workbook around that. We'll talk about that. We'll have some ideas. But then within the Facebook group, We just do each week is very variable. Like I might go in and just do some coaching backwards and forwards with people. We might do journaling or meditation or we might have a topic like last week we talked about social anxiety and I'll just do a little chat with them and we'll talk about that. And we also get guest speakers in. So we have different people that come and share like we've had sleep experts. We had a menopause coaching, sex and intimacy coaches. We just get different people in that bring a different flavor. And like I say to everybody within the membership, there'll be lots of things that we'll talk about, some things you'll totally resonate with, but take what you need and leave what you don't. I am not the fucking guru of anything. I have a lot of knowledge in this area, but I'm really conscious of the fact that nobody knows you better than you know you. And my work is all about helping you to explore that, asking the right questions But so the membership is a group space. It's a really supportive space as well, which is, I think, really good for people like to have that when you're going through that. A lot of people don't necessarily have those communities in their real life or can talk about that stuff. And it's kind of nice to have that. But I also sometimes do in-person events. So for my my book coming out, we did a restival. So a restival was a whole day of self-development talks and I had guest speakers and we had Loads of activities. It was so amazing and I loved it. And we even had a Lego walk. So you know, like a fire walk. But like yeah. parents, parents know Lego's the killer, right? So I did a Lego walk because in my book I talk about those moments in our lives when it feels like stand the standing on Lego days, right? The days yeah, when it yeah, feels yeah. like you've stood on Lego, right? And, I'm, and I was explaining in the book about, you know, sometimes you've just got to keep walking so you get to the other side of them. That's just sometimes that's all it is. And so the Lego walk was a visual representation of that. Take off your shoes, walk across the Lego. Yeah. Um, and then you got a little certificate that said brave as fuck because I'm a sweary person. And that thought made me laugh because I'm a child, basically. Um, so we had loads of nice fun things like that happening. It was just so good. Like, I love getting in person with people as well and like... Just getting to meet people properly. And, you know, pandemic sure. life made us all, like, actually miss people.
1: Yeah. So, talking about the pandemic. Yes.
2: Sidesworth. you gone worth. back to
1: acting I recently, have.
2: haven't you? Yes. I have gone back to acting. And do you know what? It's one of those things. As I said at the beginning, like, I really didn't think I would be interested. And part of the reason is because the acting world is very, like... You have this whole process of auditioning and it's like, you feel like you're going like begging for jobs, please give me this job and I just don't want to do it. Don't do it, not doing it, not begging for a job. I create my own world. If you want me, you want me, you don't, you don't. I can act, right? So I was approached by... um, uh, Lawrence, who's producing it, and Katie, who's produced it, and they both said, Would you like to come and do this role? And it's a comedy, which I always said, because a lot of the roles I did as an actor were grim, just grim. I played grim parts, like, you know, rape victims, strippers that were downtrodden, crackheads. Like, they're always the rough parts. It's my Jordy accent and my dark hair. I just look like a villain, like, I just do. And so I'd always play, like, rough working class. And, like, so I always said, If I go back into acting, I'm doing it fun like I'm laughing I want a comedy I'm only doing I'm not doing any hospital dramas because that did not serve me well in my real life was attracting hospitals in my world so when they said do you want to come in and I'm I'm in one episode of it so I'm not in the full the full row of episodes and it was a it's a really fun part and I just got to play and be around actors and you know what one also it was a full I only did a day's filming on set and so it's a day off the kids, like a full day, somebody else taking the kids to school. Like, oh, it's a trip out. I'm like loving yeah. life. Um, I'm on set. I'm with creative people. And actors are great people to be around because within like five minutes of meeting another actor, you know each other's life stories, yeah. desires, goals, trauma. We know it all. Like, we just know it all. Like, and I just love how actors do that. Like, oh, this is all my shit. Like, do you want to say, do you want to say an array of all my traumatic experiences and my darkest? Yeah, desires and weird fetishes let's talk about them all so a whole day on set of like just being around actors and playing was the most fun and i haven't even seen it yet like i've i, I haven't seen any of it and i'm so excited because it's going to be hilarious because what i saw on set what? was so funny
1: what's it called
2: it is keep Cal- I'm
1: sure no. it, is, it is keep can't carry on it is yes. uh, it's, is it different stories about the pandemic like how people coped, basically it's the
2: same family and you're with them on that journey oh, okay. so it's the same family and you will just belly laugh like it's relatable to us what we went through during the pandemic and just human stories as well like it's just really human and silly and I mean I didn't I only I only saw the bits that I was in but I saw some of the script from um the other actors as well it's got some really great people in it Harriet Thorpe and Jess in Piazza who's become a really good friend of mine as well and just really fun and I think people will just laugh because we all lived that and experienced it I think we're now at a point where we can kind of laugh at some of the stuff around it it's not yeah. quite as like we're not in it so it's like as traumatic yeah. as it might be and it's not covering those traumatic things it is very fun and silly and it's yeah. it's going to be on Amazon which um which I actually somehow have impressed my kids by that Because my kids don't care, right? I did Lorraine Kelly and stuff recently and I was on Channel 5 News the other day chatting to Dr. Sean, being interviewed. They couldn't give a shit at that. They didn't care. I'm not, like, they're just like, you're not a YouTuber, so who do you think you are? Are you famous on TikTok? Yeah, they're like, how many people you got on TikTok? And I'm like, well, not many. And, like, I I have to keep justifying my numbers to them, like, how many you got on Instagram? And I'm like... It's not that big a deal. Like, it doesn't matter. And they're like, well, why not? Like, so But when I said I was going to be on Amazon Prime, they know that. So they're like, oh, yeah, I'm listening. Like, I don't give a shit about the other stuff. So I might impress my kids at once. I don't know. They might laugh.
1: Will they be able to watch it?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the rating is as it goes, but yeah, they will be able to, my kids will be able to watch it. And they'll be fine. They watch yeah. Grey's Anatomy and stuff. They I I mean, I I don't let my kids watch stuff that's gonna like scare them, but we don't oh, that's like too graphic or anything, but we've had conversations. Like my oldest watches Grey's Anatomy, and that's pretty grown up. And if there's bits where it's like a bit grown up, we just have a conversation about it, what that means. Yeah, yeah. So it just sparks yeah. conversation. But this is fun and I don't know what the rating is on it, but I'm pretty sure they can watch it. My yeah. my age kids can watch it anyway, but it was really fun yeah. you know, it was so lovely to have no pressure of like this, what, wanting this to be my next career move. Like I was yes. able to really enjoy the process of just being on set, knowing the process. And bear in mind for me, being on set, is like put on a comfy jumper. Like it, it's like growing up on set was my safe space. Like being on camera is my safe space. Like I went to school yeah. and was the kid off the telly and at a normal, cl- normal working class school. Like that isn't that easy. And so when I went to school, it was harder. When I was on set, I was around creative oddbods like me and got to do what I loved. So anytime I'm back in front of a camera, it's very familiar it's you know yeah. my my growing up was on telly so I was always around that so when I get to do that it's just a weird familiar feeling it's like going in a family like I can't explain it anyway it was like putting a comfy jumper like I'm like ah we know where yeah. we are mic me up and like, like I just feel yeah. comfortable with it all so it was just lovely it was a lovely um a lovely space to just go and play and be around really fun people
1: has it made you want to do more maybe or are you quite happy doing that and you'll see whatever comes? I th- yeah
2: i think i'm i'm all i'm open to it but i'm not chasing it like what i want to do yeah. next tv is definitely the next step for me and i'm putting it out into the world because this is i like to affirm what i want um happy me tv is my next stage Like i want to basically be the geordie opera uh, but i want to like Yes. I just I just want that. Like I want to be on a TV show and talk about the stuff I do in my membership or in my book and I want to go, let's talk about shit we're feeling comfortable with. I'm doing it. I've kind of over the last year I've said it enough in enough places. And when I did Lorraine Kelly recently, the first time I was on Lorraine Kelly show after doing it was when Ross had just died and they had me on to talk about it. And um after I did it, the producer came and said to me, Oh, you should write a book. And I was like Oh yeah, I've already written one. When it's finished, can I come and talk about it? I hadn't written a book. I knew I wanted to write a book. I was bullshitting, right? But I thought if I say it now, it's like bagsy yeah. bagsy that space that's happening, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I said it. But then this time when I went on, which is like years later, I've been on a few times since. This time when I went on, I was like, okay, I know I'm coming to talk about a book, but just so you know. This is full circle for me because I did bullshit you like three or four four years ago and say I'd written a book. I hadn't, but I have now and you have let me come back on. So you have honoured what you said. So while I'm here, Happy Me TV. Happy Me TV is happening. Just putting it out there and I'm going to come back and talk about that, right? And they're like, yeah, okay. So like, I'm like, just put it out there. It's happening. I just need... To find the right place for it and the right format for it and how it's going to look, but yeah. it's happened. Just put it out into the world. I don't like to force stuff yeah. now. I don't like to force it. Like I've had a few people try and go, "Well, we could do that, do this with it," and I'm like, "No, nope, it's not. It's not cooked yet." I'll know. Yeah, and, and I'm very much like when they like say with a book or with anything, when it's time to go on it. I'll be all in like it will be like hyper focus we're ready to go Um, and then I'll be all in and I'll know what I'm doing but I need to ferment it that's what I've been saying I'm just ferment it in my brain and then I'll be like right let's contact channel 4 Amazon Netflix whoever it's going to be with and let's get this shit done but I'm just keep saying it so that the right people are listening because someone will contact me you know
1: they'll be listening to the podcast don't worry
2: they will I'm sure that's what I thought I knew it I knew it You never know who's listening. When I got my my book deal, I got it because I spoke about it on Instagram and it just so happened that an editor from Bloomsbury Publishing was following me on Instagram. You don't know who's following. You don't know who's watching.
1: You don't know. So just talk
2: about the things that you want. It's important.
1: Yes. Manifestation. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much. You're so welcome. i absolutely loved talking to you. Me too. I've loved it. Um, And I'll post links, obviously to you so if anyone wants to get in touch about joining
2: yeah perfect absolutely it's
1: amazing
2: it's great um, i love it i love working with people so and please do let me know when you've listened to this like do let us know that you've come from here as well so yes. i know where you've come
1: from hi so yes that's the amazing holly so check her out on social media obviously watch keep calm and carry on I will find out when it is actually coming out, but I'm very excited about it. And if you want to talk to me or Holly about anything that we discussed, then please get in touch with either of us. She's more than happy to talk to anyone. And she's wonderful to talk to. I really, really, it was a pleasure to meet her. I really enjoyed it. If there's any guest suggestions you have, let me know. Please subscribe to and share the podcast. Sharing's caring. Or if you feel like you've got a story and would like to talk to me about it then Work. talk to me about it get in touch but yeah i hope you're good um it's all everything's a bit weird at the moment Work. isn't it so big love to you stay safe and sane Work. and i'll see you next week with another Work.
0: fantastic
1: episode take care bye Work. <laughs>